take it out. If you weren't, I think there's a few back there on the table if uh, you need one. We're on the back side this morning. Um, I, I knew as this outline began to unfold that it was going to take a couple of weeks. And uh, I told you last week that after this, we were going to go and look at the subject of evil in the world before we move on to the whole topic of cosmology, uh, the science of Genesis. But um, I, I was reminded that I wanted to bring a message about the meaning and purpose of intercessory prayer, and actually this is the place for it. So uh, the next one after today will be incorporating an understanding of intercessory prayer into uh, all that we are saying about the kingdom of God and the nature of the history of the world. The question of prayer, and I say this just by way of introduction and hopefully to whet your appetite, and it's not like a topic I've never preached on before, but the question of prayer is an interesting question. Uh, if you're a thinking person and you believe God is sovereign and he's going to do what he wants to do anyway, <laughs> you know, and if the goal of prayer is not to get him to do what you want and he's going to do his thing, why pray? I mean, why pray? And that is a very good question. And Todd, that's not a bad answer, but it somehow leaves me just a little empty. You know, because a lot of people pray just to get to feel good. And that's the whole concept, and, and I'm not dissing you, but, but that's the whole concept of um, meditation and Eastern meditation. And a lot of a prayer in a lot of circles is you should pray because it makes you feel better. Well, it does do that. But when I talk to God and ask Him to do something, I want to know that something's going to happen. Otherwise, I feel like I'm just wasting my time. I want to know what difference it makes. Does it matter to prayer? Is God listening to pray? Is God listening? Is something going to happen? So, give me a week and we'll get there. <laughs> give me two weeks because I won't be here next Sunday. But give me two weeks and we'll get there. So that's coming. Today, we want to go to Roman numeral 3, Parallels Between Eden and the Kingdom. And for those of you that weren't here last week, and for those of you who were and forgot uh, what we talked about last week, I want to give you just kind of a brief synopsis and bring you up to speed, because what we're talking about in the midst of this lesson is that the, the, the message of last things, the second coming of Christ, the end of the world, the way it's going to all come together, is actually incorporated in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The end is foreshadowed in the beginning. Some of you are smiling at me because it's uh, not 6 o'clock on Saturday evening. We've passed that deadline, and uh, the world did not end and judgment didn't come. And, you know, I, I have to tell you, I woke up this morning with a great burden on my heart for the people who followed this crazy man. Uh, I don't have a lot of sympathy for him. He, he should have known better. But uh, I have a lot of sympathy for the people that left their families and their jobs and their homes and hit the road with a false message because they believed it with all of their heart. You know, you think about how they feel this morning. Some of them are probably considering suicide. 
because they're wondering if the whole thing has been a sham. And one of the problems, this has nothing to do with today's sermon. Okay, but but here's here's an extra jewel for, for today. Take this away. One of the problems of adding to the Word of God or taking away from it, of interspersing your own plans, is that it does, in fact, ultimately bring disillusionment. And people often do not wake up to the truth. They wake up and throw God away. Because they've been lied to. And they assume that somebody knew what they were talking about. Therefore, God must be the sham. And that's the tragedy. That's why it's important that we present the truth and only the truth and nothing but the truth. The way it's presented in the scripture. Because God is not a liar. And he will never be proven false. But a lot of our crazy ideas... You know, and legalism, and you could just go right down the pike. Man-made religion will always drive people away from God. And that's part of the problem. But anyway, Jesus is coming, and it's foreshadowed in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Now, the takeaway that I hope you got from last week, I mean, if you walked out of here with one thing ringing in your mind, what I hope you got was... That God is a covenant-keeping God. He keeps His promises. That He gave this planet to Adam and Eve and to their offspring, to them, have dominion over it and rule over it. This is yours. It was their rightful domain. God does not break His word. They did not understand Fully, because the devil never tells you the whole truth. If he did, you would never follow him. He always lies. He always comes disguised as an angel of light. He's always presenting only a part of the picture. And what he said to them is, in the day that you eat of it, you will become wise, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. He didn't bother to tell them that if they sold out to him and turn their backs on God, that the consequence was going to be that they, in essence, sold out the right to rule the earth to the devil. And according to Scripture, as we look toward the end of the message, he became the God of this world, small g. He became the prince of the powers of the air. He became the spirit that is now operating in the sons of disobedience. He became the great deceiver. He is the one who is masterminding, plotting, conspiring, conniving against God in every arena to oppose God in everything that is good and to destroy humankind and the planet and everything that's beautiful. That's his goal, is to tear it all down. Adam and Eve had the rightful authority and they gave it up and surrendered it in their sin. God doesn't break His Word. Human beings are still the means of operations on this planet. Now, let me step back and say, Adam and Eve were not sovereign, independent rulers. 
They were designed to be in fellowship and harmony with God, full of His Spirit, walking with Him every day in the cool of the day, having communion with God, and obeying Him so that the will and purposes of God were fulfilled on the earth through them and their dominion. They were to always operate in concert with the will of the Father. And this was not a problem because there was no sin estrangement. They were not alienated from God. They were in harmony with Him. They wanted what He wanted. They desired His will. They longed to know His mind and heart and purposes. It was only when they doubted His goodness in the temptation and turned from Him did the estrangement come. And the thing that we need to recognize today is that because of that estrangement and because of that alienation, it did not change the rules. God still works on this planet through people because we are the ones who have direct access, so to speak. Now, I, I want to say parenthetically right here, this is, this is real important. But it's, it's just one of those things, you can never get it all together in one sermon, unless you want to stay here the rest of the day. I am in no way limiting the sovereignty of God. I am no way limiting His power. He has chosen to work through human beings. That is the way He works. That's the way He operates. That is by His, his own choice and His decree nor will His eternal plans and purposes be thwarted because you are not following His will. God will find His people. And and I'm going to get to that in intercessory prayer. But God will find His people who will pray and affirm, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God's eternal purposes will not be thwarted. But it does not change the fact that his choice and his, and his commitment is to work in this planet through human beings. Some of you may know this, the hymn by A.B. Simpson. Lord, thou hast given to me a trust, a high and holy convocation to tell the world and tell I must the story of thy great salvation Thou could have sent from heaven above angelic hosts to tell the story. But in thy condescending love on man, thou hast conferred the glory. You know, the, the truth is, God really couldn't have sent from heaven above angels. Because he has given it to us by commitment. It is our mission and our message to tell God works through people. And really, the big question is, are you going to be one of the people he works through, or are you going to be on the other side? Because, as I said last week again, there is no middle ground. Now, with that backdrop, and and kind of getting an, an overarching view of the theme, and understanding that Jesus Christ came into this world as part of the redemptive and recovery process of God, he came into this world as... A man. He did not come into this world in, in his nature as God. He came as a man. And we see that hinted at in Genesis. 
as we look in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we find God saying these words to the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And to the woman, he says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Then the Hebrew word there for bruise really could be as easily translated crush. Right in Genesis chapter 3, right in the beginning, at the fall of man, God tells us the future. He says that someone is going to come through Eve's seed. Someone is going to come through the woman. And that one is going to crush Satan, even though he will be bruised in the process. And this is forecasting the future. And as we said uh, in, in the previous points, Jesus Christ is the God-man. But He came to this earth as a human being. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He entered this world as the second man and the last Adam. And here is God again working to recover and redeem what was lost through a human being. Jesus Christ lived and acted upon this world as a human being. He came in that capacity. He did not appear in bright glory, um, you know, as King of kings and Lord of lords, uh, landing in Jerusalem with all the angelic host and announcing His presence. He came as a baby born in a cattle stall, laid in a feeding trough, born of a woman. And yet, the Scripture says, His birth was miraculous and unique because God was creating the second man in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Philippians that He laid aside His attributes of deity. Now, it's important that you get the words right there. He did not lay aside His deity. He never ceased to be God. But He laid aside His attributes of deity. Those characteristics and qualities of His nature that were divine, He left with His Father in the heavenly realm. And when He came to this planet, He came as a human being who would be indwelt and filled with the Holy Spirit, just as Adam was at creation. And he would walk this planet and face the serpent, just as Adam faced him. And he would bring defeat. And friends, one of the things that is of great help to me is that my Lord Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews chapter 4, was tempted in all points the same way that I am. And this is where, again, we want to cop out and we say, well, yes, but he was God. That's why he could you know, do so well. No, he was a human being. And he faced those temptations as a man. He dealt with those issues as a man, filled with the Spirit of God, dependent upon his Father, and the power of the Spirit and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to face the temptation. 
And the fact that he conquered every single one tells me that my Lord Jesus knows how to do battle with sin. Do you realize the significance of that? I mean, think about it. When you sin, when you're tempted and you sin, you have short-circuited all of the clever, crafty pressure that the devil can bring. Because you capitulated, you gave up, you cried uncle. But when you refuse to give in, and he turns up the pressure, and you refuse to give in, he turns up the pressure, and you refuse to bend the knee to the devil, and he turns up the pressure, Jesus Christ faced every temptation to the nth degree and passed every one of them as a man, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the the beauty of the message of the deeper life in Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and mine. We have the same equipment. But furthermore, we have a high priest who is not unsympathetic, but one who has been tempted in everything just as we are yet without sin. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may find uh, grace and to help in our time of need. Because here is one who's on this ground, on this planet, in our flesh, has faced the devil and beaten him. He won. And we're invited to come to him. Who knows how to play the game. He knows how to win. He knows how to conquer. And he's invested us with the same equipment. I will give you my spirit. So come to me and I will show you how to do it. You don't have to be embarrassed. You don't have to be afraid. And, and you don't have to, to, to go groveling to God w- with your weaknesses and saying, you know, I, I'm so miserable, you know, my flesh. And it's like, no, He understands. He invites us, come boldly. Because I, I want to be there and, and show you and live through you and conquer in the same way. Jesus Christ came as a man and He faced the devil. There were multiple times in the life of Jesus, the second man, the last Adam, keep that in your mind. There were multiple times in the life of Jesus that the devil tried to destroy Him. He tried in the wilderness. Well, He tried to kill Him when He was born. He tried to kill Him when Herod got after all the babies born in in, uh, Bethlehem. He tried to kill Him by having the crowd throw him off a cliff. He tried to kill him at sea by drowning him in a storm. He tried to destroy his life by getting him to sin. All through the life of Christ, by storms, by angry mobs, by temptation, the devil did everything he could to keep him from going to the cross. Even on the cross, He tried to get him to come down by having the crowds taunt him. If you're really the Son of God, get off that thing. I mean, who would, what Son of God would let himself be crucified? Come down. But you see, the the wages of sin is death. The power of sin is the law. The wages of sin is death. And the power of, of sin and the power of death is sin. And Jesus Christ, On the cross, shedding sinless 
blood as the righteous requirement of the law, as an offering for sin to defeat the power and the strength and the consequences of sin, the devil knew if he could prevent that bloodshed of the Lamb of God, that we would remain in bondage to sin forever. And so he taunted him. But when Jesus remained on the cross without defeat, for the requisite time, the last words from his mouth were, the debt is paid. The righteous requirements of God have been satisfied. The demands of the law have been met. And in a man, a sinless man, the sins of many have been atoned. The Lamb of God has shed His blood. The power of sin is broken. The victory of death is canceled. And the next greatest effort of the devil, and some of you have heard me on Resurrection Sundays mention this before, but you've got to see this in your mind. The last opportunity to defeat the work of Christ was to prevent the resurrection. If there was any way to keep him from rising from the dead, then the devil could put the lie to the whole process. If he could keep Jesus in the grave, then he could prove that the power of sin was not really broken. And our lives would go on in their misery and in their ultimate destruction. So if you were the devil and you had at your disposal millions of wicked angels and demons, where would you be on the day of the resurrection? I have imagined in my mind that most of the rest of the world experienced a peace that they had never known before, as all the powers of darkness assembled in Jerusalem for one purpose, to keep the Son of God in the grave. That's why Paul writes in Colossians that he triumphed over them and put them to open shame, making a public display and mockery of them because he rose triumphantly through all the host of hell and didn't even break a sweat. It didn't even slow him down. The power of sin was broken and the devil could not run the show any longer. A man, a righteous man, a holy man, a man without sin, had defeated the devil on his own turf in this planet, had faced every temptation without fail, had shed his blood for the sins of many, had defeated the power of sin, had been obedient to every point of the law. And he rose triumphantly without even slowing down with all the hosts of hell gathered to keep him in the ground. And friends, Paul prays that for us in Ephesians and for the Ephesian church, he says, I pray that you will understand the surpassing greatness of the power of God. 
I want you to get a hold of what it means to have the power of God accessible to you. It was like when he raised Jesus from the dead. In other words, in that moment, when the devil did his best, with all the power he had to prevent the resurrection, God raised him from the dead. Jesus Christ powered through them without even a a hesitation, without a second of slowing. He powered through them and was risen to glory and seated at the right hand of God. And everything was put under His feet, every power and dominion and name that is named in heaven and in earth. He was raised in glory. Paul says, I want you to understand the surpassing greatness of His power that is accessible to you by faith because it was demonstrated in the resurrection. There's no greater event in history that so clearly demonstrates the ultimate power of God. Nothing can stop Him. And here's the proof. It is the resurrection. And so Jesus Christ is foreshadowed In Genesis 3, as the one who will crush the head of this wicked serpent. And we are more than conquerors through Him who loves us and who gave Himself for us. And then also in Genesis, we are told that the old serpent, the devil, that old dragon... In the future, it's going to be bound. I mean, we get this, we get this idea that this is the old serpent, the dragon, but there's this hint that he is going to be defeated. And then in Revelation chapter 20, when the king comes back, in Revelation chapter 20, the scripture says, if I can get my Bible open to that passage, it's almost at the end. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old. Does that ring a bell with anyone? Who is the serpent of old? It's, it's the snake in the garden in Genesis 3. And the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. We are told that this one who tempted them in the garden will one day be bound when our man in glory comes back. And the last Adam will establish the kingdom on this planet again. And the devil will be bound and peace will be restored. Because, once again, there is a righteous, holy one sitting upon the throne. We also see in in, in Genesis some hints of what the coming kingdom is going to be. It's interesting in Genesis chapter 2, for example, that it says in verse 5, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, no plant of the field had yet sprouted, For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Don't you find that a little interesting? Now, admittedly, this is an argument from silence. And you have to be careful about those. 
but we don't have any evidence that it ever rained on this planet until the flood of Noah. What we have is an indication that there was a mist that used to rise from the surface of the earth. And, and it uh, spread all over and watered and, and caused things to grow. Today, we have weather patterns that are incredible. We have tornadoes. We have volcanoes. We have tsunamis. We have hurricanes. We have floods. We have all kinds of weather patterns. We have, we have storms and things that threaten life. Do you think that would have been a part of an earth that God says this is very good? I don't think so. That earth was very different. That earth had a different kind of ecosystem. That earth was watered in a different way. It was cared for in a different way. It was not subject to the cataclysms of our weather patterns. You know, one of the biggest reasons that, that evolution is such a crazy uh, concept because we are told, let me, let me just jump ahead to Genesis 6 for a moment. You don't have to turn there. But, but when the flood came, the Scripture says the fountains of the deep were broken up. And the waters which were above the heavens, the waters which were below, there was some sort of cataclysmic event that, that changed everything. And the waters flooded down from above the earth, and the fountains of the deep were broken open. And the waters came up from the bottoms of the earth, and the earth was flooded. One of the hallmark convictions of evolutionary thinking is that the present is the key to the past. And we have a Bible that tells us clearly the present is not the key to the past. The past was very different from what we see today. The whole thing was different. One of the things that was true in, in the early part of Genesis before the flood is that human beings lived for hundreds of years. Five, six, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years. And, you know, people look at that and say, ah, it's crazy mythology in that dumb book. I mean, who could ever believe such a thing? Read this when you get home. I didn't have time to look it up in the first service, so I probably won't hear. So, but read it when you get home. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65. Write the chapters down. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65. In Isaiah 65, the Scripture says that when Jesus is reigning on the earth, if a person dies when they're a hundred years old, people will wonder what happened to them that they died so young. Because they're going to live to be hundreds of years old again. But it's interesting that in Matthew chapter 24, and I will read that passage, there is another cataclysm that marks the beginning of the reign of Christ that is every bit as traumatic to the uh, ecology and to the planet and the universe as the flood of Noah. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, 
And then the, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of sky with power and great glory. And he'll send his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. We're told that in the beginning of the millennial kingdom, as Jesus Christ returns to this earth, the whole planet is going to be upended again. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, stars will fall out of the sky. The whole planet will be turned topsy-turvy as the King of Kings comes to establish His kingdom. And then (coughs) strange things will happen. People will live to be four and five hundred years old again. And we find in Genesis that God gave the green plants to every animal and creeping thing for food. There was no survival of the fittest. (coughs) They didn't eat each other. The wolves and the lions and the leopards ate grass. They were all vegetarian. Only after the the terrible tragedy of Satan's influence upon the planet did the animal kingdom viciously turn upon itself. But we find in the millennial kingdom that Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65 describe a time when the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the lion will eat straw like the ox and there shall be no hurt in all my holy mountain. In other words, the restoration of Jesus Christ to this planet is going to be a thousand year kingdom that looks like Eden. In many respects. And the concept that the present is the key to the past, friends, and you're going to see this, I think, in Ben Stein's movie this afternoon, after lunch. Uh, He's not necessarily, he's not a Christian, but he is is a theist, and, and he sees the ridiculousness of evolutionary thinking, and you will too, after you see it exposed in the film as he interviews a classic evolutionist around the world. But here's the thing. Understand this. If you don't get anything else, understand this. The entire evolutionary mindset, both with respect to cosmology, geology, and biology, the whole thing is based on faith. It is not based on fact. It is based on faith. Faith in the belief. Notice I'm using religious terms for a reason. Faith in the belief that the present is the key to the past. Can anyone prove that? No. It is not provable. Evolutionists will tell you it's not provable. They will tell you it's a logical a priori assumption, you moron. Why do they say it that way? Because if you take that off the table, anything goes. There's no credibility to the whole scheme. If you take away uniformitarianism from the table, there's nothing to build that house of cards on. But that a priori assumption is not scientific. It is a belief. that is not provable by anybody's science. And what's really amazing is, 
For, for a system of thinking based on an unprovable belief, it is faith in a process that mathematicians and statisticians tell us is literally impossible. People believe a lie based on an assumption against all mathematical and statistical evidence to the contrary. This could never happen. It is as likely that evolution happens as it is that you could win the mega lotto with every ticket you bought for the rest of your life. In fact, it's a bigger, it's a bigger statistical improbability than that. That's probably only the probability of one single protein molecule coming together by accident in the right order and sequence. It's not a sustainable system. It is a belief. A belief based on an assumption that is not provable against all evidence to the contrary. And here we have a Bible telling us that the present is not the key to the past because the past was very different. And something dramatic happened that introduced itself into the ecology of the planet that upended the whole thing and turned it all on its head. And now we have a mess that God never designed. And so Genesis foreshadows what Jesus will do in the restoration as he recovers what was lost and begins to rebuild the planet. Now, it's important that we have this in our understanding. Because when you understand where God is going, you know how to, to join the team, so to speak. And when you look at the things that God has done, and again, I go back to the premise, God works through people. This is our world. He works through people. He looks for people whose hearts will turn toward Him. And I want to say it that way because until the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they won't turn toward Him. But God looks for people who, when they are touched by His Spirit, will turn to Him and say, Lord, I want to be Your person. I want to follow You. I want to do Your will. I want to understand what You're all about. And when you look at that in the unfolding of, of human history, you find, for example, Noah shows up on the scene at a time when the world has gone to its worst possible spiritual climate. Genesis 6 tells us that the thoughts of men were evil continuously. They never had a good thought, a kind, appropriate, loving, generous thought. They were incredibly wicked, but Noah... Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And here was a man who had a heart for God. And God touched him and said, I want you to bring a message to this generation. I want you to build an ark. I want you to prepare a means of escape. I'm going to destroy this planet and we're going to start over with you. And so Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. After the flood, what did human beings do again? They went right back at it. Pretty soon they're building this tower. And all the studies of ancient civilizations indicate that this was not simply a building, but it was a shrine and temple of worship. They wanted to stay together as human beings. They wanted to pool their resources. They wanted to oppose God. 
It was a tower that was built for astrology and the worship of spirits. There's no question about that in the study of ancient mythology. And God saw their, their thoughts again and He confused their language and drove them apart at the Tower of Babel. And He looked again for a man and there was Abram. And He came to Abram and He said, Abram, will you leave the land of your fathers and, and your kindred and will you go out to a land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. And if you study the life of Abram, you find the thing that stands out of his character is he believed God and God credited to him for righteousness. God looked for a person who would trust Him, who would believe Him, who would be available to Him, who would accept His plan and purpose for their life so that through Abram, God could change the course of human history through you. I will bless the world and I will make of you a great nation. And Abram and Isaac, and these were not perfect people. These, you read their lives, they made tons of mistakes, they failed, but they were people who were open to the purposes and plan of God. And finally, Joseph, <coughs> the great-grandson of Abram, shows up in the land of Egypt, first as a prisoner, but then he rises to prominence as Pharaoh's right hand to save the world at the time. And under Joseph, as the rest of his brothers come down, that fledgling tribe of Abram turns into the mighty nation of Israel. And then God looks for a person, and Moses is on the scene, and God prepares him and appears to him and says, Moses, now I have a prepared people. I want you to go back and demand that Pharaoh let them go. I'm going to take you to the promised land. And there... I'm going to reveal Myself to you and through you make the nations of the world know what kind of God I am. Do you see what God is doing? He is working to reveal His character, to reveal Himself, to express His purposes, to bring us back to Him through the lives of men and women. And so Moses goes back. He leads the nation out. They come to Sinai. And what does God do? He gives to Moses the law. And when you study the law, you recognize that the law is simply, in terms of negative prohibitions, the law is simply the revelation of the character of God. The first four commandments all have to do with worshiping God. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. God is a holy God. Don't have any other gods before Him. This is merely the revelation of His character. Oh God, there is no God but You. You are the only one. And you deserve my worship. And in fact, you're so worthy and so valuable. You deserve me to take one day out of my week and spend it in your presence. God, you are a holy God and I adore you and I worship you. And God, you are a covenant-keeping God. You don't lie. You don't break your promises. You don't want what other people have. You don't steal and murder. And God, you're a God of character and integrity. All the Ten Commandments are is a revelation of the character of God. Pure and, and holy and pristine, God reveals Himself to Moses and to the Israelites that they can begin to proclaim to the world what the God they have been blinded from is like. And then God comes upon the scene in David, a man after his own heart, and expresses what his kingdom will be like. 
And then as time goes along, the Scripture says, in the fullness of time, we are approximately 4,000 years, give or take a few, from the creation to the time that Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time, God has prepared a people. He has revealed His character. He has given the law. He has prepared the location and the time and the moment in history with the convergence of events that have been under the sovereign direction of His will. And Jesus Christ comes upon the scene. And when He comes, He is the first person on the planet filled with the Spirit from His mother's womb. He is the first one who is sinless and holy. Now, I realize John the Baptist was filled in the womb, but Jesus, I see Tom's wheels turning there. But Jesus, from conception, like Adam, was in breathe with the Spirit of God. Full of grace and truth, He comes, and as He begins to announce, He says, the kingdom of God has come. This is the second man, the last Adam. He's back. God has a man on the planet who is completely submitted to the will of the Father, who is full of the Spirit, who is without sin. And he announces the message, the kingdom of God has come. And to his disciples, he says, we live in this great and marvelous and wonderful church age, friends. To his disciples, he said, I will give you my spirit. I will put him in you. I will give you the same equipment I have, the same investment, all authority. After the resurrection, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and upon the earth. Why? Because he is the God-man. And as the God-man, he has authority upon the planet. And he says, it has been given to me, and I delegate to you that responsibility. As you go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations. Teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I will be with you to the end of the age. I will give you my Spirit. And the things that I have done, you will do also in greater things. And friends, since that time... In this age of the church, we have been invested with the authority and the Spirit and the power to be lights shining in a dark place. We are pushing back the darkness and reclaiming the world for Christ one person at a time. Do you see where God is going with history? Do you see the mission? And friends, all across America today, there are people that are meeting in churches that have just got this thing all all confused. They're sitting in chairs just like you are, or pews throughout auditoriums around the nation, listening to the professional Christian wax eloquent about something or another, while they get their little inoculation for another week of religion. And then they go back out into the world. And they go home and they're fussing in their families and they're fussing with their kids and they're fighting with their boss or they're struggling to keep their employees in line and they're trying to win a bid or promote a product or trying to keep their business in order and pay their bills. And life is just all about this nitty gritty. I got to get more. I got to get the best. I got to get ahead. I got to get my marriage fixed. I got to get this problem solved. I got to get rid of this stupid man in my life. I Whatever it is, it's going back into the world, living life on the horizontal plane. 
And I want to tell you something this morning. I'm not the professional Christian. I'm not the only missionary in this room. I am called to be a pastor teacher to the body of Christ to share with you and explain to you the things of God. But you are the missionaries. You have the light of Jesus Christ in your lives. You have the message of hope and truth. You have the light of the glory of God. You are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. I can't go to your plant. I can't go to your factory. I can't go to your sales job. I can't manage your business. You're the one there. I can't sell to your clients. You're the ones there. And guess what? That crazy spouse that's making you nuts, if they don't know Jesus Christ, they're going to die and go to hell. What's more important, that you're happy or that they're saved? What's more important, that your boss come to know Jesus Christ or that you get your way at work? What's more significant, that in your sales job you present a a message of integrity and truthfulness and honesty and present your business in a way that somebody says, what's different about you? And you can tell them about Jesus because they're either going to die and go to hell or die and go to be in the presence of God, maybe because you were there. Friends, we are missional. We have a purpose in this world that transcends this planet. And we need to wake up to the realization of where God is going and what He's doing. He's looking for people that will make themselves available to Him. Because He has something He wants to accomplish. He has something He wants to do. He wants to do it in your neighborhood. He wants to do it in your family. He wants to do it in your place of work. He wants to do it in your recreation. He's looking for people that will wake up to the reality of what God is all about and give Him full sway in their lives that He might bring light into the darkness. I have hobbies, friends. This is what I do vocationally. And I get a paycheck from this church for which I am deeply grateful for doing what I love to do. But I'm just like you. I have hobbies and other interests. I don't walk out of here on Sunday and vanish until the next week when I reappear, you know. I I do all the kinds of things that you do. And I have interests and hobbies and and personal interests. I spent some time yesterday afternoon looking through a microscope into a Petri dish at amoeba crawling across the bottom of it. And I did that because I love to do it. I'm fascinated by that. It's a hobby with me. I'm wired that way. That's what trips some of my triggers. I like that. I did not get into my microscopy to be a missionary. I got into it because I love to do it. And then I got involved with, with a microscopy group. And then I got involved with a bunch of people who have the same interest. And the more I get involved with them, do you know what is happening? I'm praying for people. God has privileged me to touch the lives of other people with similar interest who also get tripped in the same way. And I'm praying for them that opportunities will come for me to share Jesus Christ because at the end of the day, 
It's not how good a photograph I made of the amoeba in the Petri dish. It's whether that photograph gave me the opportunity to tell them about the message of Jesus Christ and to point to a Redeemer who loves them and upon which their eternal destiny rests, how they respond to Jesus. Everything I do, I am conscious of the fact that I am a missionary. I'm going to get on a plane Tuesday and fly to Kansas City, Missouri. I'm going to meet people. And I'm going to ask God to open doors and let me speak a word wherever He chooses. It may be the TSA person that takes my bag and frisks me. <laughs> it, it, it may be the flight attendant as I board the plane. It may be the person in the seat next to me. I'm not just flying to Kansas City. I am an ambassador of Jesus Christ on mission. There are people that are going to come in front of me that are going to present opportunities. And I want to be sensitive if the Spirit of God is working in their life and He touches my heart. I want to be sensitive to share the message of what God lays on my heart. Do you realize that this morning? Do you know where God is going? Do you see the bigger picture? Friends, it ain't about you. It is, but it isn't. I, I, I'm so glad God's figured out a way to, to, to give us the greatest fulfillment in life as His followers while giving us the privilege of fulfilling His mission. But you have to die to yourself before you can spring to life. It ain't about your wants and dislikes and interests. It's about the mission. It's about heralding the kingdom. It's about pointing to Jesus. It's about making difference in people's lives. And along the way, you will find the greatest joy of your life. You will find the purpose for which you were made. And it won't be some weird, oddball thing that, that well, it might be. But most of the time, God takes what trips your switch. Because He wired you that way. And He puts you in places that I will never be able to go. And you are to take what He gives you today and go where He has placed you and push back the darkness. Get the big picture so that you don't get bogged down in the affairs of everyday life. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry about tomorrow, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Your Father knows you need this. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all the other things will be added. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning. Open our hearts to receive it and to believe it, and give us a sense this morning of our divine mission. Let us rise above the circumstances by faith to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, to realize the high calling that we have, and to be faithful followers who are truly ambassadors of the kingdom of God. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.